0: Before we read God's word, let's pray together. Father, may this word, would your spirit use it in our lives, and we always pray that your word would not be a bare letter to us, but it would be armed and strengthened and made effective and go deep by the working of your spirit, and we pray that today. We also want to lift up Jeremy as he preaches at College Hill that your word would come alive through him and through the reading as he blesses the people in our sister church there. In Christ's name, amen. Luke 10 verse 25. We started looking at this chapter two weeks ago and uh, we'll continue on today. It's one of those chapters that just that's one of those sections that's just so beautiful. We could spend a whole lot of time in it. Hear God's word, verse twenty-five. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "You shall love the Lord your God." with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the gospel, this good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. And so again, we are looking at a, a section that's unique to Luke in this extended travel narrative section of his gospel where Jesus takes an extra year and focuses on discipling his 12. And Luke is showing certain things that Jesus wanted to inculcate and weave into, need very deeply into the hearts of his disciples. We see Luke's distinctive emphases when he includes sections that he alone includes in his gospel. He's very much interested in salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's very much interested in practical love to others, the Good Samaritan. So two weeks ago we started it and we camped out on the lawyer's question and I had always approached this section really viewing the lawyer's question as introductory because the parable of the prodigal son just draws us in, and rightly so. But you see, it's really the lawyer's question that's the main question. That's the primary question, the fundamental question for each of you sitting here today. Is that the most important question that occupies your mind and heart amongst all the other questions that you have to deal with? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? At the same time, Luke lets us into the motives of the lawyer. We know his heart's not right. He stands up to put Jesus to the test. You see, he's a recognized leader in Israel. He's an official authority. He's a specialist in the Bible, in Old Testament interpretation. So he stands to to question Jesus, his credentials. He wants to vet his teaching. He wants to judge if he checks out. And it seems really that he suspects Jesus is, is not gonna do so well. And he, the expert, is gonna be able to show him up and even embarrass him. He's suspecting with all those publicans and sinners hanging around him so much that his answer is gonna be less than stellar and he can therefore show him up. So he challenges Jesus, but as we often find in our lives too, when we've had moments in our life when we have challenged Jesus that it doesn't stay our challenge very long, pretty soon Jesus flips it. He starts challenging Jesus deep places in our hearts, and he does that for the lawyer. It's a severe mercy for the lawyer. So the lawyer asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And what he's showing there is far from espousing some novel teaching, sitting fast and loose with God's revealed will, he's right there with the lawyer, appealing to the same infallible source of authority that the lawyer champions in his whole life work, the Old Testament, and making it clear that it's not just the oral interpretation of the Old Testament, but the written word of God is what he appeals to. And when he says, how do you read it, he's challenging the lawyer's interpretation of that. Let's see how you check out. So the law, your answers from the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It comes out of Deuteronomy six five and Leviticus 19, 18. Thoughtful Jewish teachers brought those texts together to summarize the whole law of God, and so he does that too accurately. Love God and love your neighbor, and everything is included in that. You know, if Phil Robertson were speaking today, he'd say something like, love God, love neighbor, and take care of the kids. If you're at the Park Gate Banquet, take care of the kids. So, and Jesus replies, uh, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this. It's this present imperative verb. Do it. Keep doing it. Continue to do it. Do this all the time. And you will live. Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor with all the energy and all the attentiveness and all the proactivity with which you love yourself. And if you do that and keep on doing that, without a fail, you will inherit eternal life. That is a pathway to eternal life. If you can do it perfectly, starting from the very moment of your existence and continuing all through your life, you will actually achieve eternal life. Well, the problem isn't the commands of God. That is a way to eternal life. The problem is us. And the problem is we can't do it. The problem is we don't want to do it. The problem is we don't do it. We're sinners and we're wrapped around ourselves. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love self with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love others with every fiber of our being. We love ourselves with every fiber of our being. So what Jesus is doing for the lawyer is very gracious. He's he's pushing him to realize how high God's standard is. How impossibly holy is the holy law of God and sinners, we can't obey it since Adam fell. In effect, he's saying, lawyer, expert in the Bible, do you really understand the law that you so diligently teach? Do you really take it seriously? He's confronting him with the law's demands in order to wake him up to his own inability to humble himself, to move out and cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And when he would say that, he would say, let me find the grace in the one who's questioning me. You see, for a sinner, that's the only pathway to inherit eternal life through the very son of God who's the heir of all things. So it's this indirect gospel message that Jesus has given him to to rattle him and shake him up a little bit but the sinful heart is deceitful. We're addicted to self-salvation. That's a deep-seated issue for fallen man. We just want to do it ourselves. We see it played out so glaringly here. So in him, we see our own inner compulsion. Instead of breaking before God's holy standard, the lawyer doubles down. Again, look. lets us to what's going on in his heart. He's wanting to justify himself. That is an eerie statement. I mean, justify is what we prize, is the doctrine on which the church stands and falls, and yet he's wanting to do that for himself. He knows he can't really reach God's holy standard, so being a good lawyer, he's looking for loopholes in this arrangement. So he asks a follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? And that's really the sinful heart strategy. In effect, he's saying, I, I can... I can get myself out from under conviction if I can bring God's law down a little bit to my level and make it manageable to me to where I can compare myself with others and feel like I'm doing okay on my own. And I can make myself right with God by myself. So he asked this question to limit and restrict and narrow who his neighbor is. He wants to classify certain people as non-neighbors in order to dismiss them and even disdain them. If I can just exclude these groups, then maybe I can fulfill this command and I can therefore be acceptable to God. And while the lawyer isn't unusual in asking that question, the Jewish leaders would discuss that. It was common in, in Jewish leader attitudes to discuss who my neighbor is. And the common answer of that was it's restricted to the covenant community. It's restricted to blood, pure blood Israelites. That's who your neighbor is, an ethnic blood Israelite. It, it just shows that the self justifying attitude is widespread, and it's really as widespread as is fallen humanity, because we all do this. I mean, we ask this question too. We might not be so brazen as to articulate it like he did, but we ask it in our minds. How can we dismiss a group, non-neighbor a group? Just think about it, even if it were the case that it was only ethnic Israelites that were his neighbor, could he really have satisfied himself that he had fulfilled this commandment? I mean, absolutely not. There's blindness all over this. So the lawyer asks, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus just tells this magnificent parable. And in this magnificent parable, Jesus is effectively telling the lawyer, you're asking the wrong question. You started with the right question and now you've tilted into the wrong question. So Jesus tells the story. A certain man, and the implication is that he's a Jewish man. That's how the audience would hear this, So this Jewish man. He was traveling and he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and the journey was about 17 miles and it does go down. It goes down from a height of 3,300 feet above sea level. No, excuse me. He goes, it goes down a net of 3,300 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a constant walk down. And it was also this rugged, rocky pathway that passed through mountains and had these caves and hollows on on either side. It made very good hideouts for robbers and criminals. It was known to be dangerous, the route. So on this descent, this Jewish man is surprised by a gang of thieves. We don't know what ethnicity, what background. Some say they're Arabs. They jump out and surround him and they're just ruthless, brutal, and they strip him of everything, even his clothes, and they just beat him over and over again. They beat him to a pulp. Almost seems that they've done more than they needed to do. And then they escape, leaving him half dead. He's just fighting for his life. He's in critical condition, and, and, and if no one comes to his aid, he's going to die. It's that serious. But thankfully, by chance, by chance, see, it was an isolated place, so people weren't just passing by all the time. So by chance, good fortune, someone does pass by. And even better, he's a priest. And you see, the priest was the model of Israelite piety. He's supposed to be the best example of the command to love God and love your neighbor. So at that precise moment, a priest of all people, the best, a priest comes down the road. Surely, praise God, help has arrived. But all of a sudden, shockingly, you see this priest. The priest sees the man half dead, fighting for his life, and instead of rushing to help him, he passes by on the other side of the road. He gives him this wide berth. And Luke employs this word that's only found twice in the New Testament in this verse and the next verse, that pass by word that actually has a prefix anti in it. And it just gives the connotation of against, opposite. It's a sense that he was opposed to showing love in passing by. So that was really disturbing. So the priest passes by and goes on his way. So what's gonna happen now? But what a relief. Someone else comes down the road, this isolated path, and, and how wonderful. It's a Levite and the assistant to the priest, another model of Israelite piety. You know, you're getting the idea like a, a cardinal and a bishop were walking into a room and, you know, you had this sort of joke going on, really, so, a Levite comes, the assistant to the priest. He's another model of Israelite piety and another supposed example of the command to love God and love neighbor. And, you know, maybe the Levite would be a little more caring since the Levites did more diaconal service. So, maybe, yeah, maybe he's going to be more in tune to this. But again, shockingly, he sees the man fighting for his life and he too passes by on the other side. And again, the only other usage of that same word, pass by, with "anti" as a prefix, he's opposed to showing love and, and giving him that wide berth and going along. So we look at these two models of piety, these two Jewish leaders passing by a Jewish brother, turning a blind eye to him in his desperate need, and we're saying, why, Like what, like, what were they thinking? how did they justify and rationalize doing that? And so some have tried to to get them off the hook by saying, well, the Old Testament said that those serving in the temple, they they shouldn't touch a dead person or they'd be unclean for seven days. So maybe they're just seeing that they have to stay ceremonial clean to serve in the temple. There's all kinds of problems with that. One is, that they're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They're not going to the temple. They've come from the temple. The second is the man isn't dead. And there's other problems with that. Those are two most obvious ones. So so why, how do they rationalize it? One is maybe fear, you know. I mean, the guy got beat to a pulp. Maybe the band of thieves is still in the caves looking at them, they need to Get out of harm's way if they stayed there. They gotta hurry off. They may get jumped also. But, but probably what's more likely is that they've been serving in the temple for a week. Their division was on duty. They're going now, they're going home. And they just don't wanna get involved. It's gonna take a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. They're gonna get in a mess that they can't unravel. And they just don't wanna take it on. And so they avoid, they neglect, they turn their eye away from him. And it's anti, it's the opposite of love. Yeah, I couldn't quite read what I wrote, but early this morning, I said, it's really distressing that the most religious can miss the heart of God. That we can be most religious, most fastidious about our religiosity and miss the heart of God. So the question that comes to mind is, is the Jewish man going to lay there and die? His life just wane and die. Well thankfully another man approaches. But it's not like the Calvary has arrived because this man's a Samaritan and the first word in the sentence is Samaritan. It's like an emphatic. So this is the twist of the parable because the audience is gonna hear this and say, well, like, they're gonna expect a, a Jewish layman so they can, they can critique the clerics with a layman. But... Even more, the Samaritans were bitter enemies with the Jews. So now this Jew and Samaritan are in the story. You see, the Samaritans were the wrong race. They were part Jew and part Gentile. Long history there. The wrong race. They weren't pure blood Israelites. And they were the wrong religion. They had had the gall to mix up the Old Testament, except only part of the Old Testament. Then they had the gall to build their own temple on their own mountain, So there's a lot of animosity from the Jews towards them and they responded to the Jews. They hated each other, they fought against each other. It's like the Tutsis and the Hutus in Rwanda, like the Serbians and the Croats. And I'm trying to think of some tension. We can think of hosted tensions in our country. Maybe a a MAGA hat wearing conservative Republican and a Black Lives Matter t-shirt wearing liberal Democrat. You know, they're just, there's serious problems here. Think of whatever you can come up with where a group of people would have serious issues with one another. So... Jesus' Jewish audience would expect the Samaritan to look at him and not just pass by, but actually spit on him, maybe kick him and go about his way. But the scandalous twist, the deeply subversive and politically incorrect punch of this story is that the Samaritan, not the priest and the Levite, shows love to the half-dead Jewish man. That's what makes the story. When he sees the man struggling to live, it says he has compassion on him. And you know that's my favorite Greek word, it's blank needsomai coming from intestines. His guts hurt when he sees the pain and the trauma and the desperation of this man on the side of the road. And I love how one commentator calls this emotional response the fulcrum upon which the story turns. It's that inner heart motivation that makes all the difference here. And so this Samaritan is moved with intestine-churning compassion that the others just lack. And in Luke, this is the heart of God before our need and misery. Chapter 7 is the heart of Jesus before the widow of Nain. Chapter 15 is the heart of the father before the prodigal son. It's God's heart of compassion before our need. So far from passing by Anti, the Samaritan gets all involved, wrapped up with him, and he engages in six actions. First, he comes up to him. He doesn't pass by. Action one. Then he administers first aid by two, binding up his wounds, which probably meant he had to rip up some cloths, pouring oil on them to ease the pain, and wine on them to disinfect them. Then, four, he loads him on his own mule, meaning he had to walk the distance. Five, He takes him to an inn, and six, he stays the night to nurse him. Then when he must leave, he pays the innkeeper up front two denarii, which would be enough for room and board for at least two weeks and maybe up to 24 days. And he makes this formal arrangement with the innkeeper that if anything else is required on his return journey, he would pay the difference. So the Samaritan doesn't just offer him some help. He did all he could to ensure his recovery. He takes it on. And so Jesus then looks at the lawyer and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be or to become a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Now that's the question, it's not your question. He's corrected the question of the lawyer and he's done so in the most gripping, emotional way. It's as if he looks at the lawyer and says, I want you to take this out of the theoretical academic. I want you to imagine that, that you are a victim in desperate need, like you're the man, you're fighting for your life, and nobody's coming. I want you to imagine that that you're gonna die unless someone has pity on you. Now, in that condition, who would you accept help from? Who would you want to treat you with neighbor love? Who would you want to view you as a neighbor? I mean, anyone, right? Uh, even a despised Samaritan, it it just wouldn't matter to you. You'd want anyone, no matter race or class or religion or politics or any sort of grudge or animosity you may have had towards that person, it just wouldn't matter at that moment. You, You have to put yourself in the place of the victim here before you can ask the right question. At that point, you'll realize you don't worry about limiting who your neighbor is. You worry about being or becoming a neighbor to anyone in need. If, if you'd want a despised Samaritan to treat you as a neighbor when you're in that condition, then a neighbor is anyone in need, and your responsibility towards that need is to become a neighbor towards them. No matter what sorts of barriers present themselves, you overcome it all, and you shoulder it. No matter what grudge, bitterness, animosity, it's do unto others what you would have them do to you. It's, you have heard it says you shall love your, neighbor and hate your enemy but I say you love your enemies he's playing it out such that if we define neighbor according to one commentator it's compassion response and love make a neighbor not locale and race it's being a neighbor to anyone in need and so before this scandalous twist in this emotive story The lawyer can only respond to Jesus, the one who showed mercy. Who's the neighbor? He is, that guy is a neighbor. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now how would you feel if you were the lawyer right then? I mean your world just got flipped. (laughs) But that's the point for you today. You should feel your world turn upside down. Everything changes. See, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. A kingdom member is to have this sort of revolutionary love. Jesus doesn't just tell the parable to convince the lawyer that he can't earn salvation. I mean, that's part of it. What he's saying is the kingdom ethic is crazy to our world. It's otherworldly. The Christian in Christ is to have this sort of concrete compassion to those in need. And choosing the Samaritan as the hero and the priest as the villain just underscores the fact that we're to show this sort of practical, relational compassion even to those who are our natural enemies, whom we naturally stand aloof towards and look at with suspicion and prejudice and disdain. And so Jesus is saying it's this kind of otherworldly kingdom love that transforms the world. And so I think of this passage, and there's so many ways I'm proud of this local body of believers. And, you know, I think of 25% of our income coming in and going out to worthy ministries that show this kind of love. Various ministries we're involved with, you know, looking at the Park Gate banquet the other night and seeing Lawndale be a sponsor, all that relational involvement with that ministry. Other things we do and caring for one another and making meals and opening our church building, marvelous things that just, just beautiful. And all the while, at the same time, I can think of, I look at this in my own life and us as a church, there are ways that we can stretch. I mean, there are relational ways we can stretch to be involved in the needs and the desperate condition of those around us, to know what they are. I remember when I was growing up that my mother would quote us a poem. I didn't know where it came from until this last week. It was just way back in my brain. And we were, it was as if we were, like she detected that we were leaving somebody out, you know. And the more I think about, you know, being school age, the more I think that's such a sign of the gospel. Is if you're one that includes and not excludes, you know. And so she would look at us and she would say this, not the whole thing, but I'll do the whole thing. I drew a, He drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win we drew a circle that took him in. I think that's a huge sign that when we're those that are drawing in, not excluding or leaving out. One of my heroes, Alan and I in Mississippi, maybe some of yours, is John Perkins. And he was, you know, he's a believer, he's still alive, old man, did so much for racial reconciliation. And uh, there's this real vulnerable section in his biography. His brother was a World War II purple heart earner. When he got back from World War II, he was shot and killed by a white police officer for kind of standing up. And then Perkins, that was in 47, Perkins in 1970 was leaving like racial reconciliation meetings, but gospel tent meetings as well, but he ended up getting beat up by a white police officer. And he didn't realize he had all this bitterness in his heart, this uh, malice in his heart. And um, he was holding tent meetings, revivalist meetings, and he was really wrestling. But this man, this white police officer named King, came to his meeting. He was really unsettled. He recognized he was a police officer and had all this baggage there and really struggling. The guy just would attend. He says at first he stood back and didn't say anything, but but then he started coming up to me and saying, hey, we need to talk about the crime in our neighborhood. And over a period of time, he said that I was having hard getting past who he was, but he started supporting so much of what we were doing. He showed me a deep, deep respect and affirmed me as a human being. His coming there to me finally broke through. He became my friend and undermine my attitude so that I could no longer look at all policemen as evil. He started a healing process that had me coming out from under my own sin, out from my own malice. God used that white policeman to heal me. Beautiful, heartwarming. So this past week, I finally read Jonathan Edwards' sermon on Christian charity, written in 1730. I just commend it to you. We're going to discuss it other times because Luke won't let us go. There's going to be other passages like this. But they were dealing with the same things we're dealing with back in the 18th century. And his counsel to his church, he had so many counsels, but his counsel to his church says, you need to be those that are diligently searching, searching for opportunities to sow this kind of love to those who are desperately in need of it. Not just physical, but spiritual. And so we look at that and we say, but like how, where are we going to get the resources for that? Like, it's hard. Of course, one church can't do it all. One person can't do it all. But what makes this radical love present in our lives? And really, we say it's who makes it. And this is really the heartwarming part of the whole parable, is the one who's speaking it and what he will do. You see, we can only grow to reflect something of this kind of love as we see we become more and more overwhelmed by the one who showed this kind of love to us. He became not the good, but the great Samaritan for us. Spiritually speaking, you and I were beaten to a pulp by our own sin and misery. We weren't just half dead, we were dead in trespasses and sins. It's not just that no one stopped to help us, it's that no one could help us. We were gonna die and die eternally. Yet Jesus chose to come down our road, which is a very dangerous road. He saw us lying there in our desperation and our helplessness and his intestines churned with compassion on seeing our misery. And he came up to us even when we were his enemies. He got involved with us. He took us even when this would require so much. He, he didn't just risk himself for us. He became our sin for us. He didn't just expend a little for us, he paid the ultimate price for us. The gospel is that Jesus is our great Samaritan. He commits himself to us no matter the cost in order that we might fully recover and when we say fully recover, that's to be a glorified son and daughter of the king. An heir who inherits eternal life by grace. And that's the love the son has for you, which is just also the love the father has for you. That no barrier would stand in his way in order to get you and bring you into his family. I mean, that just melts your heart today and then move us out to others. Amen, let's stand.